Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Science, Technology, and Society podcast from the New Books Network. Uh, Here today, I'm with uh, Alan Rubel, who is a professor and director of the Information School at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, um, Algorithms and Autonomy, The Ethics of Automated Decision Systems, written by uh, himself, Clinton Castro, and Adam Pham. So, hi, Alan. Welcome uh, to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Austin. So, why why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, what's this book about? What's the project here? Yeah, so the project is um, that there are a lot of um, novel socio-technical systems, that is, systems that combine technology and human uh, decision-making that affect important parts of life. And these are pervasive, right? They range um, across all aspects of modern life. And they, it, it's becoming well known that they have uh, moral problems or raise social concerns or um, give rise to legal issues and the like. And um, so this project grew out of some popular writing. You know, there's some, there's some important popular books on, um, on, uh, kind of automated decision systems. One of the most popular, probably the best-selling one, I haven't looked at the data, but um, Weapons of uh, Mass mm-hmm. Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Um, there's another one, Hello World by Hannah Fry. These are, these are kind of captured popular imagination. And then um, there's also a fair amount of academic attention being paid to particular ways in which um, automated decision systems um, uh, do harms or cause other kinds of problems. And I, I come from a law and philosophy background, and my two co-authors, Clinton Castro and Pham, um, are, are also philosophers. And um, we sort of take it as um, our project to work out 
what exactly the moral concerns in these systems are. So a lot of us have uh, uneasiness about certain kinds of systems. Um, and sometimes we can point to how those systems fit into um, an explanatory story about big problems, but it's not clear that it's those systems that uh, create moral problems or exacerbate moral problems or that those problems uh, um, would exist anyway and so forth. So uh, what we wanted to do is, is, is describe as precisely as we can what the moral concerns are with these types of systems. And we do that by doing two things. One is looking at some particular systems and two, trying to articulate from the ground up specific moral concerns that are, that are important generally, independent of, of um, socio-technical systems, but are just generally concerned and understanding how they relate, right? So when we talk, when, when Clinton and Adam and I and others are, are talking about systems that kind of bother us, it becomes, we wanted to, to, to pin down, right? What is it? Is that just a, a knee-jerk reaction? Is there some deeper principle at work? And um, our task was to, was to work through that. And, and so we did that in, in this book. We, we looked at a few particular systems, tried to build some general um, views about them based on this uh, moral, uh, this important moral good of, of, of autonomy. And, and that it's a lot of people use autonomy, but we wanted to get down a little closer and come with a particular view and what principles that gives rise to. That's the overview. It's a little boring sounding when we put it that way, but. No, yeah. no. I mean, I, I think there's a really wonderful bit in there that comes up across this literature, which is everyone has some sort of sense that there's a, that they're being injured or there's a harm in some way, right? Like you can't read weapons of math destruction, as you mentioned, and not feel like I'm kind of being harmed in a way that I can't put my finger on. And and across the fields, I mean, different areas of different researchers have tried to pinpoint what is this feeling we have? Because oftentimes the current legal system doesn't really account for it or the current language of philosophy doesn't account for it, right? You know, in what ways, maybe is it my privacy that's being violated? But many of us don't think of privacy as a feeling maybe or, you right, know. right, right. No, I think that's it. I appreciate the way you, the way you stated that. I think that's that's helpful. Is that, um, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> we're often vague, or, or yeah, that vague sense of unease. Sometimes not even that vague. Sometimes it's a very acute sense of unease. Um, it's important to, to try to articulate what it is if there is some deeper principle there. Sometimes it's about privacy. I've actually written on privacy and other facets, and we didn't we didn't dive into privacy here because. Um, we had so much to say before we even before we got there, in a sense. Um, so yeah, that's 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 exactly that's exactly the project. And and I want to throw in a caveat here that we don't think for a second that we have exhausted all of the the, the moral concerns here. Rather, there is this particular kind of moral concern or this class of moral concerns related to autonomy that we think. Um, is affected in important ways across different of these uh, these technologies and harms and um, uh, well harms in particular, but uh, broader kind of social and legal problems that 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 go beyond um, uh, 
individual actions. We may not, there's a lot more to say there, right? And so we, we wanted to, to identify a particular kind of um, moral claim because there's a big, liter- there, you know, there's an existing literature there. We think it's a plausible moral view and, um, and, and it can do some work for us here. Or we think that working through this can, can help articulate some of the um, concerns that, that we and others have. Yeah. So why don't we pick, um, uh, you know, in the book, you kind of give three major case studies. Why don't we pick one and maybe just talk about it a little bit for the audience to have an idea of, you know, what are the kind of ambiguous harms maybe that, that, that you know, we're focused on in this book? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the three cases, we actually start with legal cases because um, legal cases uh, have a big um they leave a wake and there's, there's documentation and there's um, discovery. There's some often fairly well articulated ideas in opinions. So we started with the Wisconsin v. Loomis case. Um, Wisconsin v. Loomis is a case here in Wisconsin that was uh, decided by the uh, state Supreme Court of Wisconsin. And it involved the use of a risk assessment technology called Compass. Um, uh, that produces a risk assessment score for people uh, charged with crimes. And it uses, it uses that, the Compass is designed to aid in administration of larger criminal justice apparatus. Uh, for example, um, you know, case management, uh, moving people to um, different kinds of resources before trial, things like that. And it was used not in that, place, but rather used in, um, in the process of sentencing somebody for a crime. And, you know, so, so uh, this rate, because it's used in sentencing, it raises all kinds of, for example, due process concerns. And it also has this bigger um, uh, set of this, this larger wake behind it. You know, there's more a discovery, more cases, more information. So we use this to, to, to think about, right, okay, what, <laughs> there's this guy, Loomis, he's, uh, he's, he's charged with a fairly um, significant crime. Uh, it's a, he's involved in a, in a drive-by shooting. Um, it was not his first violent crime or convention, conviction. And he, he, goes, he pleads guilty to, um, uh, to, to some charges, other charges are read in, which means that the, the court will consider them as, as true. Um, and then the court sentences Loomis. And in doing so, the court uh, uh, asks for a pre-sentence investigation report. As part of that, there's this Compass report, which has this risk assessment score attached. And lo and behold, uh, Loomis's score is pretty high. It, 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 uh, it uh, has a score of him being, you know, risky in terms of uh, committing further violent uh, actions. And the judge in that case sentences Loomis um, about as high as, uh, about as severely as the judge could have in this case. So within the, within the high range. Now there, that, that, that um, raises all sorts of uh, kind of red flags or it, it, it tweaks a lot of our, sensibilities and our intuitions about due process and what kinds of things ought to go into considerations when somebody's uh, liberties at stake, right? Who's going to prison? And that's, that's, you know, 
pretty much the harshest thing that the state of Wisconsin can can do to somebody. Since we don't have it. So what's what's the difference between say Compass and um, and maybe a report? I mean, so what's what's new about Compass? Is it just something that the police precinct maybe writes like a classical report, or yeah, is good. it a government agency? What 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 is it? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. Is is what's what's the difference? The difference is that Compass takes in lots of data, not just data from a particular defendant, but data from um, all across the state. And the Compass um, system takes does the same thing in other jurisdictions as well, and it builds models to predict um, to predict riskiness. Now that is in a sense parallel. No, it's not. It is parallel to what human actors do. Um, when they, you know, have paper and pen algorithms or simpler um, systems. Uh, but the, um, I think one is it's got more predictive power. And two, um, that predictive power is, is kind of offloaded in a sense. And we get to this in, the, in later chapters about agency laundering and, and importance of, of humans for taking responsibility cases. So, so those are the important things. And, you know, our can, you know, there's that, then there's the possibility. It's not just possibilities. It, it appears to be true uh, <laughs> that, uh, that um, the compass system has error rates that differ by race and ethnicity. Um, so while it's well calibrated, that means it tends to get the, the, it, it tends to, um, it tends to predict pretty well whether people are, are likely to um, uh, commit further crimes or commit further, further violent crimes, um, regardless of race and ethnicity. The error rates are different between white defendants and black defendants. Right? So um, there's more likely to be uh, false positive rates for black defendants that are more likely to be um, assessed as high risk and, and for a black defendant and that defendant not to um, reoffend, um, then as compared to white defendants, and more likely to have false negatives um, for white defendants. That is, uh, assess them as not risky, and that defendant, the white defendant, to go on and commit a, a further crime or violent crime. And what that means. So, so if you put that in, if you put that into sentencing, and sentences track this. Um, likelihood, this, this assessment of riskiness, then it'll mean that sentences for black defendants um, would likely be higher than for white defendants for similar backgrounds and similar crimes. But here's the thing. If it's used for allocating scarce supervisory resources, then it's not obvious that then it, it, it's not obvious that that unfairness unfolds in the same way. It doesn't look like it does. Rather, the issue seems to be that um, uh, it, it may be that, that yeah, right. It may be that, that um, black defendants um, are more likely to be allocated uh, resources than white defendants. And so there's this complicated issue surrounding what the problem is with Compass. And that's the thing that kind of uh, bothers us. And then there's the ability to offload decision-making to this system and kind of absolve oneself or avoid um, the responsibility that one takes in um, in deploying the system. So that's yeah. the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what's fascinating about one of the things you just said that um, 
that I think is a theme of this whole literature uh, and emerges throughout this book that's very interesting to think about as well, is the idea that these systems are being used to judge riskiness and that riskiness has an error associated with it. And that the role of this program is to provide some sort of epistemic support to sentencing. When, you know, we we haven't even discussed, and, and this is outside of, I think, our scope here, but it's just interesting that, that we haven't discussed kind of as a country what values there are in sentencing, right? I mean, it's not kind of obvious that that sentencing must necessarily correlate with one's risk. I mean, whatever that means in the epistemic sense. And so it's fascinating to read a whole chapter kind of about this error being right or wrong when there's no baseline comparison. I mean, I don't, we don't know what sentencing was like in this sense in, say, the 70s. Not that the 70s were right or anything, but it's just incomparable. Yeah, you know, this is this is really this is really interesting. In fact, Clinton and I are working on a paper, um, you know, that that I mean, there's a whole you know, literature on, you know, what justifies, if anything, uh, <laughs> criminal sentencing, that is punishment by incarceration or um, or or uh, other restrictions on liberty or fines or, you know, in some cases. Definitely. So there's, you know, is the. Do consequences justify it? And if so, that creates problems. Um, some sort of retributive notion where you know deservingness captures it. But yeah, that's a whole that's that's an important facet too. In fact, many people think that 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 punishment per se is never justifiable, and any kind of response to criminal action needs to be something that's not about um, hard treatment to a person who's committed the crime, it needs, to, it needs to have different kinds of aims, different kinds of goals. And so, yeah, we're, <laughs> in this book, we aren't, we're, we're I, want, I don't want to say we're agnostic, but we don't weigh in here on that issue, which is a whole other thing. It's like, given that there is this system, you know, <laughs> what, what could, what could this system, how could we justifiably deploy a risk assessment system even in that context? That's that's the question that we ask, which is, of course, narrower than the one that you're asking. But yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, so yeah. let's so maybe then let me let me then lay out kind of then an overview of this and how it fits in the book. Um, you know, so there's we have risk assessment systems that are kind of appearing in the courtroom, appearing in different say, we'll, we'll just limit ourselves to legal settings, as, as you said, just for easy dis- discussion. Um and so you have these kind of three actors, right? You have this kind of compass system that's, you know, an algorithm. We don't really know how it works. It's trained on data. Maybe that's how humans work. Maybe not. You know, that's a big claim. Who knows? Um, there's the judge who's being presented all of this evidence and who is in some sense, and we'll get to this is where I want to head to next. We'll get there. Who is some sense of a free person who is choosing based on his knowledge of law, his, um, you know, requirements in his duty um, to properly sentence people and weigh evidence uh, in light of, you know, all the factors. And then there's this, uh, this person being sentenced, Loomis, who, in, in this case, Loomis, who, um, who's kind of just sitting there with the score who, who had, had, has no relationship to the score. And so, you know, let's start this discussion kind of about maybe autonomy and thinking about the judge and thinking about Loomis, because I think in this book, you kind of parse out, there's two issues in some sense. Both both are having their autonomy violated. And so how can we think about maybe autonomy and then get back to Loomis and the judge? Good, good. Yeah. So um, so that's this is just the setup, right? We've been talking for a while and 
just trying to articulate like what what we're queasy with. Um, okay, so how do we start thinking about it? Good. Um, well, we articulate a view of autonomy, and I don't want to spend a lot of time there because it's contested, and I think we can get away with a fairly thumbnail sketch. We got a whole chapter on it, and there's you know hundreds of years of literature on this, but you know basically autonomy is something like the ability to um, incorporate values into one's life as one sees fit. Um, and and um, that's based on certain capabilities or capacities that people have to decide for themselves what matters and how they're going to structure their lives and things like that. Now, all of that, we could have deep discussions about any part of that, but, but um, you know, we, we provide an account and I think it's a plausible enough account. Um, so, okay, how do we get there, from there and this kind of moral good to think through Compass? Well, um, one thing is, you know, what kinds of values or what kind of goods, or what kind of states of affairs do we owe people who are, who have this capability and um, decide for themselves kind of what matters and at the same time can um, abide fair terms of social cooperation with other people who have these capabilities, right? And um, so part of it becomes what can a person Except now, obviously, this is this is hypotheticalized. Um, we can't go and ask everybody. We kind of can, but but it, it is very hard to pin down these kinds of things. But um, we can come up with some broad principles by thinking about the kinds of things that people could agree uh, to um, uh, to abide if they're subject to these kinds of decision systems. And we start with a, with a different case. We start with with teacher um, evaluation systems. There's a couple of very interesting cases there and um, discuss what kind of the problem is. And so what kinds of things could a person agree to? Well, um, one thing that matters if you're agreeing to this kind of decision system, so Loomis, not himself, but Loomis hypotheticalized to some extent, so a person being subject to sentencing. Well, one thing that they might, one important factor in determining whether a person could agree to be uh, subject to these decision systems is, is um, how how good is that system? How accurate is it? And I, and I don't mean that in a, in a technical sense. I mean, just, you know, how likely is it to, um, uh, to, to track the, uh, to, to track the state of affairs in the world? How, how, how truth tracking is it? How, um, how good are its predictions? How, how reliable is it in some sense? Right. So there's, so there's, there's that, I mean, a bad system is, is, is more likely that somebody could not abide it. Another, um, is the stakes involved. Um, that may be the biggest one, right? So it's fairly easy to, to agree to a system that isn't even all that good if the stakes aren't that high, right? Suppose Spotify's decision algorithm or Pandora, whatever music system you use, isn't that good. And you get a lot of bad, you know, bad recommendations. Well, you might not use it, but if it's better than nothing, well, the stakes aren't that high. You just, you know, hit fast forward, not that big a deal. But this is a big deal, right? Teacher, I mean, teacher evaluation is a big deal because people's jobs are at stake, money, their livelihoods, their sense of self. Um, sentencing, very, very big, right? Uh, also, sense of self, and, and but you know, one's uh, one's freedom, one, lots of other uh, rights and that one has. Um, there's also the sense to it. There, there's a factor in whether a person got to buy these kind of systems as to whether it purports or seems to track something for which one is responsible. Um, so in the teacher case, um, the evaluation measures purport to track something for which teachers are responsible, but in fact, they aren't really. Like a lot of times it tracks just extraneous factors. 
And then a fourth factor that we come up with is um, whether it it exacerbates or compounds or sits on top of other kinds of social um, social burdens um, that might be um, other kinds of say historic discrimination. It might be um, it might just be um, so. For example, teachers if teachers are uh, um, being treated poorly in other ways, and this system sits on top of that. That's worse than if it's um, than if it's that if it just kind of sits on top of a otherwise very very good uh, um, working conditions. So those those are the things that matter. And to the extent that any one of these systems to which people are subject does poorly on these measures, that's one that they they can't reasonably abide. It's just something that that ought not be something we ask of people to do. Um, those are the that's the that's the criteria we lay out, and I think we make a case that that each of those uh, the teacher systems that we talk about and the um, and compasses is uh, it fails on those regards. Yes, yeah, so 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 uh, yeah, this this sounds great. So there's a kind of a view of autonomy, which I, which I agree with you. I don't I don't think is too useful to kind of dive into the weeds. Of, but but it kind of encompasses this variety of, of different features of being, right? There's there's the kind of, I get to present who I am. There's the kind of, you know, I should be held responsible for things that I was actually responsible for. Um, there's the kind of reasonable ability to endorse things in a public fashion. Like uh, if you say something, I should be able to understand it and say something back. And people should kind of listen to me and see me as equal. And so these are kind of the, I think, the basic tenets you spell out and kind of say, you know, autonomy is some sort of group of these things. Um, and so now let's talk specifically about, you know, in what ways then do these systems harm our ability to to be kind of autonomous? Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> you set that up very nicely. Thank you. So, um we say there's sort of three things. So the book is divided into three chapters. One is just what people are owed um, as autonomous beings. That was that's the first thing we just I just kind of laid out. Um, they're owed systems that they could reasonably endorse. Um, but they're also there's this issue of of transparency, right? So a lot of concerns, and I'm sure you've seen lots of these these commentaries about um, about uh, systems being black boxes or inscrutable or um, obscurifying, or it's probably not a word, um, but, you know, that's a problem. And it's not obvious why that's a problem. Why, why does transparency matter? Well, a lot of people say, well, it'll make things better if, if it's transparent. It's not obviously true. Maybe it is, and that's good, but in many cases it wouldn't be. Moreover, it's not clear what transparency actually means. What has to be transparent? There's a big debate about um, in, in the EU, especially about um, uh, the right to explanation laws and things like provisions. Um, and, and so, you know, we think that that kind of misconstrues the question. We think what matters isn't transparency, but respecting people's autonomy, that is their ability to understand how they fit within the world in certain ways. And that has different components, right? So one thing you're owed, you're owed uh, systems that you can abide. You, uh, you're owed something about your ability to understand your world and act um, in it. So we think that there's a kind of theoretic, man, I haven't read the book in a while. So there's, it's not theoretical, agency, <laughs> but it's, um, there's practical agency and another kind of agency and democratic agency. And so there's different kinds of information that we owe people 
in these different settings. So Loomis, for example, doesn't isn't owed the um, underlying nuts and bolts of the Compass system. Like you know, like, maybe he's a he's a you know a, um, a data scientist, but I don't think so. Um, you know, rather he's owed the ability to exercise practical agency, to exercise autonomy in his case, but understanding enough or having his agents understand enough to function well within a legal system. Um, on the other hand, in other systems, it might be that one needs enough um, to understand how to address these things, systems like this democratically. So there's different kinds of um information and transparency that's owed depending on the value, the, the type of autonomy that, that, um, that, that one has a claim to exercise in particular circumstances. So that's so, the second thing. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off please yeah so if we flip that around then right so you know instead of being owed as you just use the word claims right i mean you, we could even say you know loomis should be a claim holder who can who can mm -hmm. make claims on say the court and say or society and say you know i have some right here to know what's happening and you know i have some right to participate fairly and i don't know and i love how you sort of separate out well this might mean different things if he's a data scientist, he might actually be owed more, maybe, or maybe, maybe not. But there's a sense to which he'll interpret things differently, and we owe everyone kind of some basic, fair, operative level to which they can understand. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's it it it, it in this case, you know, because he's his liberty is at stake. What matters um, is not necessarily that he has access to the information that a data scientist would have access, but but. His, his agent would right to to, to right. be able to to um, audit the system or at least um, understand enough to uh, to evaluate uh, and and make a case to a court about uh, what its capabilities actually are. Yeah, it, it sounds very Kafka esque, right? Like the beginning of a good Kafka novel of somebody kind of saying you're under arrest for a very bad crime, um, but but not being able to actually substantively state the merits of what. What is the crime, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah. there's that kind of injustice, you, we could call it, um, yeah. that is a violation of autonomy because yeah. this person is not able to act as a free agent. Yeah. So, and, I th and I think that's true. And, and, and the thing is, like, the, the couple of cases are very momentous, right? And I think that this, that it's often, it's often not to that level of momentous issues of being incarcerated. Um, and we, we, I think in that chapter about transparency, we talk, you know, we do, we talk about um, uh, 
kind of credit scores and rental markets and some people being you know excluded from renting properties because they're caught up in a system that is pretty good but not that good and their name gets cross you know gets um, mixed up with somebody else uh, somebody else's identity and you know <laughs> they they them exercising agency might be more like well they know how to fix they, they have the ability to fix it not necessarily understand what's what's underneath in order to make you know claim to a court but just you know, go about their lives and actually, you know, function effectively as as a normal person in the U.S. Being able to rent an apartment. Um, so yeah, the the kind of the the kind of stakes is going to matter for the type and degree of information provision. That's the 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 index that we've got. Kind of, we try to work out more or less. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so why don't we move then and talk about why aid, why autonomy or, or um, agency kind of matters from the judge's perspective. And I think, uh, you know, you have a wonderful concept of, of agency laundering, which I have to say, upon first learning about this this concept, I chuckled a little bit at how, how great of a term it really is. Um, and it requires almost little explanation once once you kind of grasp it. So maybe you could explain this and how this applies to maybe the judge who is yeah. doing sentencing. Yeah, I, 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 I like the judge case because because it turns out the judge didn't do it, right? So, so or, or, you know, like their, their agency sort of isn't laundered here, but others are. So um, so we talked about the agency from the standpoint of um, individuals who are subject to systems but or agency and autonomy. But there's other facets of autonomy. Uh, it's a couple of middle chapters. We talk about the conditions um, for people to act autonomously and, and, you know, the ways in which our, our attention may be um, may be, um, encroached upon, or we may be manipulated. And so the conditions of exercising autonomy may be, uh, 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 undermined by certain kinds of systems. Uh, let's, let's leave that aside for now, because I, I want to stay on the compass thing as, as, as you're, as, as you have. Um, so the third part of the book, we talk about the responsibilities of people in light of the fact that they do have, um, autonomy, they are autonomous, right? Um, so, um, the judge in this case, right? So this judge has a responsibility. He has a responsibility in light of, um, his position, right? He's in a position where he has taken on this role of adjudicating cases in the state of Wisconsin and sentencing people in accord with, um, the laws of Wisconsin, um, the constitution of Wisconsin, the constitution of the United States his judgment, um, and, um, yeah, and, um, uh, and, and taking, uh, taking into account, um, the, the facts and the representation of particular cases. So he's, he's taken on that role. So he has responsibility. He has, he has this responsibility in light of his role. Um, but responsibility itself is multifaceted, right? There's also, um, what we might call causal responsibility. He is the mechanism by which people become sentenced. Um, there is uh, uh, capacity responsibility. He's able. He 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 he. When he makes decisions, those are normally uh, carried out. Um, they might be overturned on appeal, but for the most part, it's capacity. And then there's this um, uh, uh, ability. This Michael um, Morris. What we do called moral responsibility. It's the combination of of these various kinds of responsibility. One is actually morally responsible for the things that one does so long as one has a certain degree of control over them one is able to act intentionally and one has this capacity to act autonomously that's the that's the setup 
And some of these systems can be used in a way that um, separates off or allows a person to um, uh, offload the uh, degree to which they are causally responsible or they're able to make it seem as if causal responsibility for some action is really taking place in the algorithm, right? So um, if you just say, um, set up a system and let it run and it leads to bad outcomes, it's true that that system is causally responsible. That is, it is a key part of the explanation for why some state of affairs ended up happening. But that's a different story from the ultimate role responsibility, moral responsibility for the thing occurring. And by inserting that kind of causal process, it can allow actors to um, distance themselves from moral responsibility, right? They still have it, but it appears as though and leads other people to, to, to kind of believe, maybe themselves to believe that moral responsibility does not lie with, with, with the actor, right? So, um, what we argue, we argue for this conception of agency laundering, which, which is this process of you know, using a system in the causal chain and thereby distancing oneself from one's more responsibility within that chain. And, um, you know, so, so we, we, we describe several cases where agency laundering seems to happen. So in those school district cases, the schools do seem to distance themselves from their responsibility for the ways in which their teachers are evaluated and sometimes lose their jobs or lose bonuses and things like that. We use the case, we, we talk about Uber and, and a certain kind of um, uh, uh, pricing structure, um, surge pricing and the way in which surge pricing incentives draw drivers in to um, drive perhaps when they might not otherwise, but not always get the surge pricing. We talk about that as a way in which um, a company launders its own responsibility for setting the conditions of employment and payment for its drivers. And so we get to the judge in this case. That's a long way of getting at this issue of laundering in the case of the judge in the Loomis case. And what we do is we say, look, you know, um, the judge really could have just said, hey, you're a high risk person, Loomis. Um, the, the score shows that you're high risk. And, you know, I have um, these sentencing guidelines and high risk people. I'm going to tend to sentence in these high risk guidelines or in, in these um, higher sentencing ranges. And therefore, you know, um, you're sentenced in the highest range. But that's not what happened. And I think this is actually a very interesting thing that, that came out of the Supreme Court decision, the state Wisconsin Supreme Court decision in this case. The uh, decision was written by um, Justice Ann Walsh Bradley. I should do a disclaimer here. I clerked for Justice Bradley for a couple of years, and and um, I I think very highly of her. <laughs> um, and and she, and she, and she writes very very uh, perspicuous opinions. And you know she pointed out that look, there's a process that this judge went through by not just relying on the compass algorithm, but rather explain the specific facts of this case, Loomis's uh, prior violent criminal history, um, uh, other things going on, um, and explained his reasoning 
and therefore you know, owned the decision. Did not just say, I know that this is high risk, rather uh, explained exactly what was going on and why he was making that decision, and therefore didn't seem to kind of offload that responsibility at all. And so, you know, regardless of whether you think this was good or not, there's plenty of things we might criticize here, and, and you've already raised a couple about sentencing generally, right? Um, important stuff. But the judge here, um, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court recognized that the judge here uh, made the case and may, you know, provided a full explanation for what this outcome was based on facts of the case, the um, sentencing guidelines of Wisconsin, the um, prior uh, prior criminal history and things like that. And not only that, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court required that any use of this kind of tool have that same kind of process involved. And so it sort of, um, it, 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 foreclose the possibility of, kind of laundering judicial agency in, in, in similar cases going forward. So yeah, the agency laundry thing is, is, a, is important in, um, I think the agency laundry thing is important in uh, paying attention to the responsibilities of agents, um, not just what we owe individuals. So why don't I give a, maybe an example then of agency laundering, maybe right. the extreme form of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if we think about content moderation online platforms, yeah. um, you know, these platforms often use a kind of human in the loop setup, yeah. which for those who don't know, um, essentially they have houses or not houses, kind of a whole office buildings full of uh, people whose job is to uh, look at content that flashes by their screen and say kind of yes or no. Yeah. And this is done at a large scale. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, maybe, I mean, how would you describe the situation? I think you're familiar with it. Yeah, you know, I am. Um, I'll plug a, a friend of mine's uh, book, Sarah Roberts, wrote a really good book on this behind the screen. Um, she's a professor in the information school at UCLA. Um, yeah, that's that's a that's a fascinating question. So um, you want to talk about who the agent agent is that might be laundering responsibility here um, or laundering agency here? Uh, you know, the, the people in the the people in the in the building are the mechanism by which a, um, a content platform might launder its agency. Look, we have a process. We have a whole system. I mean, Facebook has this, right? They have their own little kind of courts. Is their own quasi, it's not quasi-legal. It, it, it uh, appears it has some of the trappings of a whole kind of um, structured legal regulatory system, even though it's just some decisions by, by a corporate entity, it's not a legal system in any sense of the word, um, but they have it. And the idea is that, um, okay, we have a system and, uh, you know, that is the thing that um, ensures, I mean, according to their conception, that ensures that uh, um, the content um that appears on Facebook or, or, or lives on Facebook, has some kind of life on Facebook or some other social media platform, um, is uh, acceptable or um, reasonable out there. So there's a system and Facebook says, well, we've got this in place and that is the causal mechanism by which content appears. Um, and um, therefore, we're not responsible in the sense that we aren't causing the content that you see. Rather, it's this process that's causing the content. 
So we, we actually use a Facebook example. It's an advertising example, um, not a content moderation example. It's, a, it's an automated advertising example where we think that, yeah, that just setting up the system, having it uh, work for Facebook, that is work for them in order to generate ad revenue in a way that, that, that makes money and doesn't cost a lot of money um, is a way of kind of outsourcing this, I shouldn't say outsourcing because it, it, that, that could talk about the labor too. Um, it's a way of um, distancing themselves from the, the chain of responsibility um, of what actually happens within the context of the platform. Right? So yeah, that, and, yeah. And what I love about the, the, the term too is, I mean, for the STS scholars in the audience, it's, it's kind of, I mean, there's, there's kind of a humor to it because in, in all of these cases, you know, you could tell just from kind of like the socio-technical context that it's it's obviously Facebook who's controlling, say, the content moderations, right? I mean, whose guidelines are they reading? Whose trading are they getting? Or in the case of revenue, who's running a profit-driven company? Who's it, it, and so I I love the term because on the one hand, it it's kind of factually true in some sense, like they really are putting this to the other people. But there's also kind of the flip side of it, too, which they're totally not. And I think that's why the, the laundering term um, is, is, is really fantastic, especially with its connotations. And, and I, I, I guess towards the end here, why, why does this matter for, for democracy? I mean, what's, yeah. what's at stake? I mean, why, why does this matter, right? I mean, of course, in, in the courtroom, you know, ideally we want our sentencing to be as, as fair and rights protecting as possible. You know, but like I said, we don't really have a baseline. How rights protecting was the precinct before who was handwriting a report full of, um, you know, who knows what, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I want to be careful not to claim that the old ways were the good ways and the new ways are the bad ways. I don't think that's true. I think rather that certain kinds of systems make salient processes that happen in more diffuse and hard to pin down ways, right? So, um, you know, you're, you're talking about risk assessment happening in, you know, lots of individuals' brains and, you know, bureaucracies, mechanisms. Um, before there existed systems like Compass, yeah, that's true. And that's not necessarily better. I mean, there's, there's, there's every reason to think that, um, such systems can be arbitrary and biased and just mistaken and subject to all kinds of, of, of problems. Um, and systems like Compass or, you know, predictive policing systems that we talk about chapter eight um, can do a better job in some sense, or maybe not. Maybe they do a similar job. That's, that remains open. But they can focus our attention and let us examine a little more closely and therefore be a little more, not a, they, they, they allow us to do a certain kind of criticism, a certain kind of analysis, um, just allow us to do that, allow, allow us to do a certain kind of criticism, a certain kind of analysis. I definitely don't want to make a comparison to, you know, the good old days and the bad new days. I, I, I don't think that's true. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, so, so you're right. But I do think that this, helps us pinpoint some important factors that are relevant to, um, uh, to uh, a democratic, um, multicultural, liberal, um, 
open democracy. So um, in the court case, for one, right, so the court case that's important as um, it's important that, that there be actors that are um, exercising their agency explicitly in these cases rather than offloading to systems. I think that's important um, for, from the standpoint of legitimacy. Um, but I also think that um, when we start talking about um, the responsibilities of agents generally, so, so the book divided into three, chat, three parts. There's the, what we owe to individuals, the conditions of people being able to exercise their agency and, and act autonomously, and the third, responsibilities of agents as autonomous actors. Um, one important issue is that certain kinds of systems can make it difficult for you and I, for individuals, to effectively exercise their responsibilities as part of a liberal democracy. So this is where this is where we talk about um, recommender systems and um, and misinformation. So um, there's lots of different ways in which manipulation of, of social media, manipulation of information, and disinformation. Um, has been criticized, and sometimes it's criticized because it leads people to make bad decisions or do wrong things or get pushed into a direction to do things that they might not otherwise have done. It's not obvious to me that that's the case. Um, it might be. It, it, it could be hard to pin down. I think that, that what is true is that um, in information distorted environments, whether we actually have a good epistemic basis, good epistemic grounds to exercise our agency within a democratic society um, uh, is contested. I, I forget how I started the sentence, but the problem is that this bad epistemic environment, this epistemically toxic environment um, can hinder our ability to fully exercise a responsibility as members of a democratic society. If we have bad information, like we want to make good decisions, but we don't just want the decision to us to make the right choice. We want to make right choices on the basis of sound bases. And that's a key problem from the standpoint of this and misinformation is that it undermines that basis. Um, even if the outcomes are the same, outcomes based in a, in a toxic epistemic environment are less legitimate than those outcomes that result from a perspicuous or a healthy epistemic environment. Um, I think that's, yeah. that's great. I mean, I, I, I think that really clarifies. And I mean, and I think this is kind of the story of the book is, is a tale from agency all the way up to kind of how this relates to democratic legitimacy uh, and, and reflecting in society. So um, you know, I want to thank you for your for your time today. Um, you know, we've we've been talking about your recent book, Algorithms and Autonomy: The Ethics of Automated Decision Systems, by uh, Alan Rubel, Clinton Castro, and Adam Pham. Uh, and I uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.